Now may God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face shine upon us that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you. O God, may all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you rule the peoples justly and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. Then the land will yield its harvest and God, our God, will bless us. God will bless us and all the ends of the earth will fear him. God, hasten that day. And may the preaching of your word now serve its great purposes in us in your great plan for the nations. Give us ears to hear, we pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if, if I begin to talk about um, Gucci and Calvin Klein and Ralph Lauren and Christian Dior and Prada, those of you who are amongst the uninitiated, those are designer brands. Those are luxury brands. The idea behind the one in eight Americans who loves to buy luxury designer brands is that they get a better product. They get um, something special, something beyond uh, the ordinary. But if you expand, I think, beyond designer or luxury brands to just certain quality brands... We find that a lot more than just about 15% of us are buyers. For instance, guys, if you're going to buy a lawnmower, nothing runs like a deer, right? Am I right? How many of you have the little North Face fleece emblem on your fleece? It's everywhere. We buy certain brands with the hope that we will get a better product. Um, Not only do we hope we'll get a better product, but honestly... Many of us buy these things hoping that we'll get a little boost in our social status. Okay. We'll be just a cut above the rest. Um, you are what you drive. Image is everything, or at least so we are told. We are buying in the hope that we will somehow enhance our social standing. And at some point then the label begins to matter more than the item itself. That's why if you go to Chiang Mai and visit their sprawling night market, you'll find most of the booths sell knockoffs of luxury items. You can buy Oakley sunglasses, you can buy Gucci purses, you can buy all those things. None of them are the quality, but they have the label. And people buy them like crazy. Even Daniel Creswell came back with a North Face backpack uh, from the Chiang Mai night market. Twelve bucks. bucks. See, even though the quality is poor, we want to sport the label. Um, When the label begins to matter more than the item itself when we buy for what we think it will do for us, when we buy in order that we might be associated with that label, in some twisted way we can actually begin to feel superior to the people around us who are carrying regular purses or driving regular cars. Um, 
It even extends to the level of the coffee we drink. It's not just coffee, it's Starbucks. And at even another level, it's not just a donut, it's a Krispy Kreme, okay? We can begin to feel superior to people who drive regular cars, drink regular coffee, and yes, eat regular donuts, as hard as that is to believe. So when I drive a certain kind of car, or I live in a certain kind of neighborhood, I wear a certain brand of clothes, I begin to feel a certain sense of superiority by association over people around us. Say someone who lives in the Franklinton School District and drives, say, his daughter's 95 Saturn with 175,000 miles on it. And he wears a sweater vest with some kind of weird griffiny thing on it, <laughs> which I think is the, the, the label that represents clearance rack. I think that's what that, what that stands for. When we see someone like that, we feel superior by our associations. And there is something very similar to this that's going on in the church at Corinth when Paul is writing to them. Obviously, it's not about what they drive, and it's not about what they wear. I'll see if I can uncover for us something in terms of the way it addresses of something which is much, much more serious than just those two matters. Now, Corinth was a church, and I don't want you to miss this as we talk about Corinth's problems often. Corinth was a church much loved by the Apostle Paul. He loved the church in Corinth. It's evident in the way he writes from the start of his book. He, he was the church planner who planted the church. He pastored and lived there for two, almost two years. And he writes of them, right at the start of the book, he says, I always thank God for you. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. Paul loved this church. But as Jeff Doyle taught us two weeks ago, it is a church deeply troubled. Partly, I think, because it's a church that lived in a deeply troubled culture and the culture had, had permeated the church. There's an old saying that, that goes like this. It says, the, the ship is meant for the sea. But God help us if the sea gets into the ship. And in Corinth, the sea of the culture had gotten into the ship of the church big time. They tended to divide around their favorite churches, or favorite teachers rather. They struggled with sexual immorality. They had dysfunctional marriages. They had worldly business practices. They had messed up theology. The church was a bit of a wreck. Which makes you wonder... Why, of all the churches planted in the New Testament, would this one be recorded for us in the letters of Paul? Why pick this church? Is it to make us feel better about ourselves? At least we're not that bad. Okay. To make us feel a little better about our brand? You know, the letter to 1 Corinthians is recorded in the New Testament so we can see ourselves. We are a lot more like the church in Corinth than we are willing to admit. I mean, let's be honest. We struggle with the very things that plague the church in Corinth. Sexual immorality? Check. Dysfunctional marriages? Check. Worldly business practices, check. 
And as we'll see today, we have a tendency to divide and prefer and exclude just like Corinth. You know, sometimes when you're driving through the countryside, you'll see a church and it's named Corinth Baptist Church. And you think, why would you name your church Corinth Baptist Church? I think maybe it's because whoever named that church was just a little more honest than the rest of us. 1 Corinthians is for us. It's written for the people of North Wake so that we will see ourselves in our sin, in their struggles, and we will embrace the freedom that the one who loved us and died for us intended to set us free from. Paul, in the first nine verses, as Jeff taught us a couple weeks ago, lays a foundation of hope in the faithfulness of God. It says, He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. And immediately following that foundation of hope, Paul starts in in the next verse where we're going to start today, and he starts addressing those issues and concerns that are deeply troubling him concerning the, the, issue of the, church, the issues of the church in Corinth. In verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some of Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Right out of the gate, the first issue that Paul wants to address with this troubled church, it's not their sexual immorality, it's not their troubled marriages, it's not their business practices, it's their division. It's their unity. And, and I, want, I want you to see how high Paul sets the standard here. There is a zero tolerance for the dividing the church. We must be one. He makes his appeal lovingly. He says, brothers, brethren, brothers and sisters. But it's made, it's made strong because it's made in the name of Jesus Christ, which is what's at stake here. The testimony of the name of Jesus Christ in a very dark city is at stake. Jesus said in John chapter 17... As he prayed to the Father, he said, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Could it be that the mission of the church lags so horribly because our disunity denies the very truth that Jesus was sent as an expression of the love of the Father? We spend so many times trying to strategize and figure out why we aren't good at evangelism. But rarely do we ask the simple, critical, essential question, are we united? Are we one? Tolkien wisely said in his parabolic story of the Lord of the Rings, he said, Indeed, in nothing is the power of the dark Lord more clearly shown than in the estrangement that divides all those who still oppose him. Right at the center of Satan's attacks against the, first, the church in 1 Corinthians and the church at North Wake is divisiveness, quarreling, a threat to our unity. Now when Paul says a zero tolerance for divisions, 
perfect unity. What does he have in mind? Can we have no differences at all? Do we give up our distinctives and just all believe the same thing of necessity? I don't think that he's talking for us to march lockstep and agree about everything from the color of the carpet to the brand of coffee we serve. But he is telling us that even our distinctives as a church in a broader community of faith in Wake Forest must be subordinated to our unity in Jesus Christ and His gospel. Christ matters more. Now, it's, it's tempting to think, how could you mess that up? How can you get wrong unity about who Jesus is and what He's done for us? That's pretty clear. But it's not just some theoretical academic assertion that He wants from us. He wants our faith in Jesus Christ and His gospel to transform our relationships in this church, in our homes, in our community, the way we relate to believers wherever we encounter them. In the next couple of verses, we better see the shape that their divisions were taking. He says, My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. It seems that their quarrels were happening around personalities. Some were touting Paul. Another group said Apollos, who may have well have been the pastor that came after Paul to Corinth. Still others say Cephas or Peter. And some say, no, just Christ. Just Christ. Now, most, it seems, were not in Paul's camp. Paul's apostleship was already being disputed just a short period of time after he left Corinth. But the, the specifics here are difficult for us to sort out exactly what they were fighting about. It seems to revolve around personalities. It seems um, that Paul's focus here is not on those leaders. It is on followers. Okay. He is not fussing out the leaders at this point. He is pressing the followers for inappropriate allegiances. And there's one thing that each of these groups have in common. If you look closely, you'll notice it. It's that little word, I. I follow Paul. No, no, no. I follow Apollos. No, I follow Peter. I follow Christ. It's I. It's like little kids gathered in the front yard, and the conversation starts to get competitive. And one of them says to the other one, my dad can beat up your dad. My dad's better than your dad. My pastor is better than your pastor, essentially, is what they're saying in Corinth. My leader is better than your leader. And by association, I am better than you. Because I follow a better way. Here, it's not about some front yard squabble. It's not about a designer purse or a luxury car that makes you feel superior. I am of Lexus. I am of Gucci. It's about spiritual leadership that divides the church. It's about people saying, I am Paul or Apollos or Peter or even Christ. 
This Christ faction is a bit more difficult to sort out than all the others because when you first read it, it sounds right. Of course we would say, I am of Christ. But what seems to be going on here is that they are using Christ's name to establish their superiority over the other parties. So even Christ is being used to divide here. Even Christ is being used to establish their superiority over other believers. So what's driving this? What drives it in Corinth? Um, At one level, simply, it's competition. It's competition to be more spiritual than you. I'm going to be more spiritual than you. My pastor is better than yours. It's spiritual one-upmanship. The Bible calls it pride. And it's contrary. Competition within the kingdom, within the body of Christ, is contrary to the way of Christ, which uh, Philippians chapter 2 tells us is to prefer others, to put their interests ahead of our own, to consider them more important than ourselves. It's also a kind of usurpation. People have become more important than Christ, or at least as important as Christ. A man has taken the place of Christ in our allegiance. The labels matter more than the purse. The emblem matters more than the car. The pastor, the teacher, the author, the theologian matters more than the unity we have in the Savior. Now, I wish this was just a first century problem that we could talk about historically. It's not. There are fertile grounds for this to take root in our culture, in our day, even in our church. Let me just walk through a few of those with you. First of all, it's kind of the culture of celebrity that we have. Um, Rock star is no longer limited to rock stars. Anybody can be a rock star. Even pastors can be rock stars these days. Ed Stetzer writes this way. He says, somebody once said the gospel came to Greeks and the Greeks turned it into a philosophy. The gospel came to the Romans and the Romans turned it into a system. The gospel came to the Europeans and the Europeans turned it into a culture. And the gospel came to America and the Americans turned it into a business. And business is booming, he says. Millions of churchgoers file into buildings each week, line up in rows like shelves at Walmart and watch the stage. They come for one purpose, to see a show and hear a pastor. See, this culture of celebrity has people attach themselves to some famous pastor or theologian and say, I'm of Piper, I'm of Driscoll, I'm of Dever. And this begins to define them as superior over those who are not in their group. There is a church plant in our area that for close to three years, as I remember it, tried to get John Piper to come be their pastor. He said no. They kept trying for up to three years. Why do you think that is? Could it be that if they got a famous pastor, they'd be more important as a church plant? I don't know their motives. I don't even know the name of the church. But it makes me wonder. The exaltation of the teacher to a place where only Christ deserves our devotion is deeply troubling here. Now, 
Honestly, I think there's probably little chance of that here at North Wake. You have a graying, balding, chubbying, 50-something pastor who's never written an article, let alone a book. Okay? You're about as safe as they come from celebrity pastoring. But that does not mean that in dark places and weak moments, I don't want to be famous. I wouldn't like to be a celebrity. And in some weird, twisted way that even a sweater vest can't repel, it doesn't keep some of you from trying to make me into that. So it takes root even here. After 20 years of being your pastor, it can take root here. That's one of the three significant purposes for my sabbatical last year, was to wean you from my voice that you would understand that the beauty here is Christ and His gospel, not my voice. There is a culture of celebrity in our land that is oozing into the church, and it's extraordinarily divisive at points. Another area is the matter of denominations. We have a multitude of denominations in our land, different stripes of Christianity. I remember when I first came here, I had a conversation with somebody, and they were trying to figure out what kind of church I was planting, which, of course, I'm planting a Christian church. That's the answer. But they wanted more, so they found out that we were Baptist. And they said, well, at least you're Baptist. Like it had been some tragedy if I was planting a Presbyterian church or a Methodist church or an Episcopal church. We are happily Baptist at North Wake, mostly. Okay. There's a few things every once in a while that drive us crazy, but mostly we're happy because we align with the distinctives of our Baptist brothers and sisters well, and we partner with them well in mission. But those things pale compared to the fact that we are a Christian church that worships and exalts Christ. For too many of us, what is secondary has become primary and divisive. Closely related to denominations are theological systems. People will describe themselves, especially when you're stones throw from a seminary, they'll say, I'm reformed. I say, well, I hope so. I'm, refor- I'm a reformed Christian. Or I'm a Wesleyan Christian. Or I'm a charismatic Christian. Or I'm a dispensational Christian. For too many, the adjective that goes before Christian really begins to go before Christian. It matters more. And it begins to divide. The modifier that describes our stripe of Christianity has more power for some of us to divide us than the fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ has the power to unite us. The same kind of thing happens with methodology or philosophy. Someone says, I am of Sunday school. We say, well, I am of small groups, more biblical model. Someone says, I am of choirs. We say, I am of drum sets, guitars, and praise team, way cooler. And it goes on and on. I am of congregational rule. Well, we're of elders. 
I'm going to do any of these things about our church ever make you feel superior to other churches? A little better? A little smug? What matters more to you? The adjectives that come before Christian or the fact that you and the person you have just met are both Christians? Both redeemed by the blood of the one who loves us. Paul blasts the church in Corinth and us for this nonsense in the next verse. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? And of course, the answer to those things is an obvious no. No. It's about Christ. It is supremely, centrally, always about Christ. Not our heritage, not our traditions, not our leaders. Those things are important, but they dare not divide us because it's about Christ. He died for us. We were baptized into His name. There was a missionary to India long ago that said something provocative in this matter. He said, talk about what you believe and you have disunity. Talk about who you believe in and you have unity. Now, of course, we must talk about what we believe and we treasure our distinctives. But they are subordinate to our unity in Christ. It's about Christ It's not about your favorite pastor or theologian or professor. It's about Jesus Christ. So this morning, are you dividing the body of Christ by your prideful associations? Do you tend to exclude people who are not of your stripe? Do you think that your brand is superior? Does a particular leader or author or pastor or professor matter as much to you as Christ If I left North Wake, would you? Are you dividing the body of Christ by your prideful superiority by association? Now, up until now, Paul has been pressing upon the followers, upon the members of the church in Corinth. That's why you're feeling so uncomfortable. Blame Paul, not me. But now he changes and he has something to say to the leaders by his example, not by his words. In these last three verses, he says, I'm thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say you were baptized into my name. Oh, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What Paul is not doing here is running down baptism and saying it's insignificant. That's not what he's doing. He's doing at least two important things. He is clearly establishing his desire not to be head of any faction or group. Paul's going to great lengths to say, hey, it's not about me. You're not following me. It's not about whether I baptized you or not. 
That's not what it's about. The second thing that he's doing is clearly establishing the supremacy of the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ came and died for the sins of men and women. And then rose from the dead on the third day. That matters more than everything. That's the thing that all authentic Christians agree on. That's the things that makes all our differences, important as they are, secondary. Maybe tertiary or some other airy way down the list. The gospel trumps our differences and makes us one. With the Methodist church a block down the road, with our African-American brothers who are meeting a block the other way, Christ makes us one. And he trumps our differences. Now, because in our congregation there are many who are in training to be pastors and teachers, and many who exercise those gifts in our church, let me close with one reflection on a word of warning in these last verses. He says, um, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He may be alluding there to a content different than the cross of Christ. He may also be alluding there to simply eloquent preaching that draws primary attention to the preacher. The stunning thing about this is that kind of preaching, and I'll focus on the latter, that draws attention to the pastor. That kind of preaching, he says, can empty the cross of Christ of its power. That's terrifying. How could that happen? Well, based on what we've seen already, if the preaching is designed to draw attention to me and my sense of humor, me and my intellect, me and my oratorical skills, whatever strength you might have, then people may trust in me. They may hope in me. They may follow me and not Christ. I can't think of a greater tragedy. Make sure when you preach and when you teach that all your gifts exalt Christ. Your humor exalts Christ. Your intellect exalts Christ. Your eloquence exalts Christ. Whatever your strengths are, they exalt Christ. Pray to be invisible when you preach, that only Christ will be exalted. The Latin phrase is soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. And may it be so every time you preach. But this morning, the question for us is, are you dividing Christ by your pride. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, this is, this is complicated and it's hard for us to diagnose this darkness that creeps into our souls. Because we want to be right. We want to follow the, the best way the truest way, the most biblical way, and then all of a sudden we've become proud of ourselves.
And we're no longer on the way. Not the way of Christ. So God, I pray right now that you would bring to mind for each of us where it is that our pride may have been divisive and so grieved you. Where we've been full of ourselves or tried to gain status by dropping a name here or there or by mistreating or ridiculing someone who is a brother or a sister in Christ. And now as we draw near to the table, Father, we are so thankful for the chance to commune with our Savior, who is above all. We're so thankful for the opportunity to get grace for just such a time as this, our time of need from Him. As we remember and we obey and we worship and we honor the one who, whose name we are baptized in, the one who was crucified for us, Jesus the Christ. For on the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. He broke it. He said, this is my body. It's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In like fashion, he took the cup and he reminded them that this was a new covenant that was in his blood that was to be shed on the cross the next day for the forgiveness of their sins. And he asks us to do this also in remembrance of him.